want to come back to um, this um, point we had uh, about struggling. What is your name? Yeah. Um, uh, because uh, maybe it could be that we have used the word in like a slightly different meaning, struggling. So the way I use struggling is so there's something happening. For example, loss. And I either struggle with it or I grow with it. I accept it. I uh, become compassionate. Yeah? Do you, do you see what I mean? So it, it's not about not experiencing pain and loss and so if you you could call that struggle but that's not the struggle the struggle is um, what you how you work with it uh, what you do with it do you accept it so in a way what Lena described was a way to reduce the struggling by saying this is something valuable problems is something valuable so saying problems is something valuable is to reduce the struggling because you say and in a way you could say the problem ceases to be a problem i mean it's still something it's still a challenge it's still a it's still something you need to find out how to work with it how to be with it but by saying ah oh, i can grow with my problems you reduce the struggle because you increase the acceptance ah oh, yeah life is difficult this is how it is so now what can i do with it so and when i then reflect on this because the question then also was could we imagine that it is possible to be of free of struggle i have a sense that it is possible in that way not being free of going through the challenges of life but being free of resisting what life is and what it brings to us i think that's a possibility and when i see someone like lama sopa lama sopa rinpoche then i then i really sense he is someone who has who managed to let go of struggling that does not mean that he had to, that he let go of you know having a lot of problems and had having a lot of difficult people in his life and having sickness and having losing things and and so all that is happening in his life obviously but when you're around to him you 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 feel you see that he is free in all this because he is not struggling with what is happening and i think that is something we can you know we can be inspired by and then and then of course accepting this is a long journey 
of training. And uh, in meditation, sitting meditation is a way to strengthen our muscles, uh, our muscles of not resisting. Not resisting, but okay, discomfort, sound, tiredness, you know, all this stuff coming up in meditation. And all the meditation instructions, they support us in finding, finding a, a posture, finding a way to be in this with less and less struggling. Or in other words, we stop to make things worse than they are through resisting. We don't make things better. We, we, but we stop to make them worse. And, and of course, that's making them better. But, uh, but it's already a lot when we manage. Let's say, for example, you have some chronic pain. And, and you have done a lot of things. So you kind of... Tr Western medicine has, you, you know, you, you have found... You have tried, but it's just not working. It's not helping with that chronic pain. Imagine something like that. <laughs> so now what, um, uh, for example, uh, John Kabat-Zinn in his work found out that there's many people like that. Many people with chronic pain who have like tried everything. So then at one point you don't have any other choice than okay it looks like I have to live with this how can I reduce my suffering since I can't reduce my, the pain but how can I reduce my suffering by reducing the resistance by reducing the struggling. Any questions? Okay, so let's go to the six perfections. The next six verses. So first, a general word about uh, this translation, the six perfections, yeah, which is <laughs> like the traditional, um, the traditional translation. Um, Ken McLeod says, "Perfection is not a very good translation." 
but it is probably the best in English and it's standard usage now. Neither the Sanskrit nor the Tibetan carries any notion of doing something perfectly. Yeah. So neither the Sanskrit nor the Tibetan carries any notion of doing something perfectly. Instead, they point to a transcendent quality that is present, present when you act in complete clarity, when what you do is not mediated or distorted by the projections of reactive emotions and conceptual thinking. So, it's, it carries the, the meaning, the Tibetan word, that you do what you do, for example, being generous, without being distorted by the projection of reactive emotions. What could be, for example, in, in, uh, in generosity, what could be a, a reactive emotion distorting the practice of generosity would be, oh, I hope someone is looking. Maybe I wait a little before I'm generous. <laughs> so right now there's only five people here. If I wait a bit, then there's ten. <coughs> then there's more benefit for me. So that would be a, a distorting the practice of generosity with a reactive emotion. So less of that. Less of that. That means that we uh, that we approach uh, the practice of the perfection of generosity. So the first one is so the sex perfection is generosity, ethics. Patience, joyous effort, concentration, and wisdom. That's the six perfections. And uh, you know, maybe you have heard the, the description of the Bodhisattva path, which is uh, at one point the Bodhisattva enters these stages of what is called the Ten Bhumis, which are like different levels of realization of the Bodhisattva. And within these Ten Bhumis, the Bodhisattva is <coughs> working through, through, uh, working through these uh, six perfections, accomplishing them. So meaning uh, practicing generosity practicing generosity and practicing generosity until there is no reactive emotion anymore involved in the expression of generosity.
So. The first perfection, generosity, opens you to life. By itself, it does not end confusion. You can give and give and give and still feel separate from life because you are the giver, giving something to someone else. You are the giver, giving something to someone else. So now again, it comes. How do you make this the practice of the perfection of giving? I'm sorry, now it comes again. <laughs> Thus, in addition to giving, look at who is giving. Who is giving? Yeah? <laughs> 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 giving, yeah. Oh, there is someone. I give something to someone. And now, who is giving? Rolling the eyes backwards and looking back. Who is giving? This is a this is a suction instruction. <laughs> like it is as if you are rolling your eyes backwards. Who is giving? You see nothing, of course. You see nothing. What a relief. You see nothing, of course, and that is the point. Rest in looking at nothing. Rest in looking at nothing. It's like this. And you turn around. Who is giving? And then you rest right there. You have no. There is a uh, there is a video. Um, uh, it's called um, Lama Yeshe talking about Mahamudra or something. So if you Google on YouTube Lama Yeshe and Mahamudra, the Lama Yeshe is doing this, and maybe then you get it because <laughs> it's Lama Yeshe doing it. Turn your mind around. Who is looking? Yeah? And he does like this. Yeah? And then you rest right there. Do this again and again whenever you give. One day something drops out. You see no giver. You see nothing. 
When you give, there is no consciousness of you on your part. You are not giving. It just happens without thought, struggle or reaction. It's almost magical. So that's how, how you transform the practice of, the, of generosity, of ethics, of patience, of joy of effort, of concentration into the perfection of those. Rest. What do you see? Nothing. So why don't you, why do you see nothing? Now comes the torch. Yeah? <laughs> Example of the torch. So let, imagine this is a tor- uh, flashlight, a torch. Yeah? And m- in mindfulness practice and meditation practice, you, you use your attention to direct the mind towards certain objects, like. Okay, I'm, I'm aware of breath. I'm aware of my feet. I'm aware of my belly. I'm aware of a mental image of the Buddha. I'm aware of anxiety in my stomach. Yeah? So, illuminating the different objects. The mind is illuminating the different objects. Directed by, by the mental factor of attention. So now, the curious question arises, what is it what is looking? What is it what is illuminating the different objects? What is that? Obviously, the objects are illuminated. Ah, there's the breath. Ah, there's the anxiety. So they are illuminated. They are seen. They are known. But what is that? What, what is that? So you become curious about that which knows the breath. And with, with what can you look? No, there is nothing out there which you can call. What you need to look with is the thing itself. You need to look with what you are looking for. So, yeah, you need to look with what you are looking for. So now, initially when we do this, there might be a sense that there is a kind of light beam, you know, turning around. So now light becomes curious about, oh, what is light? So the light beam goes out and kind of, what does it see? Nothing, because it is what it is looking for. It can't see itself. (laughs) In other words, you are already what you are looking for. 
This is it. You are already Buddha. You are already Buddha nature. You are already essence love. You will not find it. And this, this, uh, no, this is expressed in many stories, not only in the Tibetan tradition, you know, this story of people who go far away to find the treasure. You know, they travel the whole, they make, they make the journey of the hero. And then when they are completely exhausted somewhere in a very far away country, they, they meet the guru. And the guru says, Oh, my dear one, just go home <laughs> and dig in your own garden. There it is. And then the person travels home, all this journey home again. And he digs in the garden. And then he realizes, oh, I have been sitting on the treasure all the time. I, I have not really understood what I just said, but it's, <laughs> but it's, it's I mean, it's so wise. <laughs> you, you, you're not going to hear something more wise. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. So when we now read the the, the first verse about the generosity. <laughs> if those who want to be awake have to give even their bodies, what need is there to talk about things that you simply own? Be generous, not looking for any return or result. This is the practice of a Bodhisattva. So, so the last two verses, they really express the perfection. Be generous, not looking for any return or result. Yeah? So that is giving without strings. That is giving without um, reactive re emotions. So that means even to not wish others to be happy or reduce their suffering even without that? Yeah, without that, without any strings. Mm So, again, we need to repeat this again and again. Every day when you give your object, so um, 
Ken McLeod here is uh, suggestion, the practice of giving something every day. Giving away something every day. <coughs> if you have children, you don't need to worry about this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but also you know those you know when we go for work, you know, when we do something for others, when we give favors, when we open doors, when we so there's many ways when we smile at someone that can be a, that can be generous. So there, there's many ways to uh, to to be generous with our resources, with our being, with our time, with our with our, with our money, with our attention, like. I mean, if you uh, if you come here and yeah, first you are generous because you you pay, but then you know you are generous because you are considerate of others. You know, you maybe you clean up or you help some 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 somehow or you ask someone who he, how she is. So all that is like little acts of generosity. So we don't need to look a long time. We are very decent. Uh, and generous people, anyway. I mean, without that, Swedish society wouldn't work at all. I mean, you are surrounded by generosity. That is this house that we can be here in this room. Um, so. I don't know. I don't think we need to kind of. He is kind of suggesting, suggesting to make it like a practice. Yeah. But uh, maybe it's also about becoming aware of the many acts of generosity which are already happening from you, which are already coming. Yeah. So every day when you give your object. Open to the whole experience and ask, who, who gives? Probably you are sick by now of this question. <laughs> <laughs> what a stupid question. Yeah? Do not answer the question. Do not think about it. Just ask the question. You experience a shift. So, maybe I could, you know, use the example of the experience here. So, my my giving is now to make these words. My giving is, you know, trying to explain. So. The giving is happening, and when I open to this experience and I ask this question, who is giving these words? Who, who is doing the giving? Who is teaching? So I turn around, what do I see? Nothing. There is a shift. 
Well, there is a shift. Just a moment before, maybe I thought, wow, this was so wonderful. This is great. It's, I'm so glad that it is recorded. I can put it out. Yeah? But then if I ask, oh, who is, who is doing this? Then all that is gone. Because there's nobody here doing it. It's happening, obviously. But there's nobody here to claim it or to be proud of it or mm. you know, to make a big deal of it. It's just, I mean, this is what is happening. I'm sitting here, you're sitting there, and you know, it's not a big deal. Nobody, I can't claim anything. Why? Because I can't find the I who could claim anything. So there's a shift. There's a relief. At first, at first, the shift lasts only a second or two. Keep doing this every time you give. Bit by bit, the shift lasts a little longer. Rest there. The shift lasts a little longer. The gap lasts a little bit longer. Forgetting yourself lasts a bit a little bit longer. You know, when you are sitting in a position like this, like teaching, and, for, and you forget yourself, it's so wonderful. Because if I forget myself, I, I'm not afraid anymore to be criticized. I'm not I'm not puffed up. So all the turmoil which might come when you teach just ceases. I'm not expecting anything then. It's such a relief. It's such a, such a freedom. And then what happens is something magical happens because out of that something can arise which can benefit all people involved. Now, out of that space, we, are, we can connect with our intuition, we can connect with our creativity, we can connect with our... You know, if I'm sitting here constantly like criticizing myself and comparing myself and thinking about you know, what other people could think when they listen to this and blah, blah, blah. You know? So there's this whole... You know, and then if that drops, then you know, all, you know, then my my experience is available to me. What I have read is available to me. What I I don't know even things I don't things I not know yet that I know them are available to me. <laughs> Over time, you notice that whenever you give, you're a little more awake, a little more present. You do not think about <coughs> giving. It just happens. No thinking, no self-consciousness, no pride, 
no attachment, no conditions, no second thoughts. Here you touch the perfection of generosity. You give. You give an object to someone and he or she receives it, yet it feels so natural. It feels so natural. So in the moment that it feels like nothing at all. It feels so natural that it feels like nothing at all. It's very uh, inspiring to see uh, uh, someone like Lama Sopa, um, how there's this enormous uh, pouring of generosity without any strings attached. No big deal. As if it's nothing. There's this beautiful story where he once um, was driving in a in a car to uh, Bihar on a pilgrimage, and uh, and then they were passing this little village, and there were a group of people outside, and they were just sitting there like a few families. And Lama Sopa uh, stopped the car, and uh, he said, "Oh." Uh, I, I, I want to make an offering here. And uh, so the people gathered some things, a cutter and something he could offer. And then he went out of the car and he approached this uh, group of people. And in that group of people, there was a little a handicapped girl, like six, seven years old. And Lama Sopa took the cutter you know, bowed down to that little girl and made an offering to her. And she burst in tears and very, uh, uh, very touching that scene. And then he, uh, when he then came back to the car, the people they they ask him what was this you know why why did we stop why why did you make that offering to that little girl and then Lama Supa said I don't get the opportunity every day to make an offering to Tara mm -hmm. another good a story is. Um, uh, someone, a monk I know, told me that when when he when he first met Lama Sopa, before he became a monk, he had this uh, very expensive watch. He had he had it from his father, and he was thinking, "Wow, that's such a fantastic offering! I make this offering to the guru." 
<laughs> yeah? And I let go of this expensive watch. So he took the watch off into the room, making the offering to the guru, comes out, sits down, the next person goes in. <laughs> Coming out of the room, oh, so happy, look, what a wonderful watch. <laughs> was over gave to me. We can all understand this, uh, how he felt, yeah? <laughs> how he felt. This is wonderful divorce being at the hand of this person he does not know. Yeah? Maybe he even doesn't like that person. Yeah? So that was not the perfection of uh, generosity from the part of the person who made that offering. <coughs> Because there was someone giving something to someone and having expectations. <coughs> um, what is, of course, what is important here to say that um, we are, we are, no, this is a training. Yeah? So, of course, we will fail and fail in becoming aware. So, one One thing for us just now is to become aware of all the strengths which we have in our giving, to become aware of them. Ah, yeah, now I'm, I'm expecting something back, or now I'm disappointed. So if, as soon as we give something and we kind of follow, what is the person doing with No, what like you give some money to your children or something like this and then you kind of but you have like certain ideas or certain limits what should be done with this money then it's not then it's not giving then it's a kind of manipulating wanting something back so there is a <coughs> Uh, in the in this uh, practice of generosity, they distinguish between three kinds of giving. The first is giving materials, yeah, giving things. I guess that's something where we all can stretch a bit, like push a bit. Not because we should, but because it's uh, it's something which also which makes us happy. I've I've listened to a, a interview some time ago. Uh, within the, the, it's, it was like a group of quite successful men, and they were giving away 60% percent of the income each of them. So they were like. Uh, so what they said as as a way to to live to to live their life is. When I'm increasing my income, 
I'm not increasing the standard of my living, I increase the standard of my giving. And I found that very inspiring, but uh, quite challenging to think about it. But it, it really uh, touches something in me, that, that there are people like that. That, that there are actually people like that who don't increase the, their standard, standard of living, but rather their standard of generosity when their income increases. So, a little bit maybe we can... So that's giving material aid, and then there's giving protection from fear. So that is... uh, Supporting people, protecting. Animals, for example. So helping people on a more emotional level. And then there is uh, the the giving of the Dharma, the giving of the teachings. So that's wherever it is appropriate, wherever possible to uh, to where where there is an opening to yeah, to uh, maybe make posts on Facebook or you know share a flyer or talk about this weekend with friends and uh, so just to no, not being a missionary but um, to be generous to be re- generous with your resources not with the things which help you. Like there can be this tendency to want to keep things for ourselves. So that's, uh, in my case, it's like really trying to uh, be open with all the sources I have and you know, the books and the teachings and retreats uh, of other teachers so to, to just like, you know, not think, oh no, I, I better hide this book so I can pretend a bit it's coming from me <laughs> or maybe like I, I rather hide this book otherwise people then go there because it's much better yeah, so to be to be like completely open and uh, generous with uh, that which is good for you that, that which helps you 
Yeah, so that's the practice of uh, generosity. Dana. The Pali word. Dana. Any questions about that or comments? Okay, then the next one, uh, and then we will have a break. So that is uh, ethics or morality. So in the practice of ethics, you bring attention to every situation. Consider carefully what is appropriate and do that to the best of your ability. So in the practice of ethics, you bring attention to every situation. Consider carefully what is appropriate and do that to the best of your ability. So on the Mahayana level of practice, the practice of ethics becomes quite complex because there is not, there is also guidelines, yeah. But it's not like on the on the Hinayana level of (coughs) ethics. It's it's more simple. It's more clear. Okay, you don't steal. That's it. You don't lie. That's it. But on the Mahayana level, you need to bring attention to each situation because each situation might call for actually to break the you're not supposed to lie, you're not supposed to steal, you're not supposed to kill. Because it's the most, it could be it's the most appropriate thing to do in that situation, like know this traditional example of if hunters come and they ask you oh where did the deer run so as a Hinayana practitioner you're not supposed to lie as a Mayana practitioner you bring attention to that situation And you consider carefully what is appropriate. So now it comes again. What does it make? What does make this the practice of the perfection of ethics is to bring in the wisdom aspect, ask who is acting ethically here? As before, you see nothing. (laughs) 
<laughs> Again, you keep doing this. One day you drop into an empty clarity for a moment. And you just do what is appropriate. You just do what is appropriate. <coughs> Without thought. Without all that careful thinking. Again, it's like magic. So one day you... So... Um, no, the... Uh, one way to talk about that nothing which uh, we look into when we ask the question who is acting ethically, one way to talk about that nothing is to talk about the five wisdom qualities. Yeah? The five wisdom qualities of Buddha nature. And one of the five wisdom qualities is that we learn in the teachings of Buddha nature that inborn in us is already a knowing what is the most beneficial to do in any situation. This is something which remains right now more like a faith, a leap of faith. Is this actually true? But uh, that's what is being said in the teachings, that you are born with that. That something in already in you already knows should I go right or left what is the best for every, everyone involved what is the most beneficial to do in this situation right or left in the teachings on Buddha nature it is said that that knowing is already in you but then the conceptual mind comes in and distorts that so, uh, Ken McLeod here is describing how when we uh, look into that gap, when we pause, when we forget ourselves, then there's wisdom. And you just do what is appropriate, without thought, spontaneously, without thought without all that careful thinking. How oh, should I go right? There's the ten advantages, the five disadvantages. Should I go left? No, without, without the all. What's the right thing to do? Should I steal here? Wouldn't, wouldn't, be the, wouldn't that be the best to do? Now to steal and then to share what you stole. So, in other words, what... Uh, Ken McLeod in the teachings of Buddha nature is implying is that for all of us it is possible to live without thinking. Kind of from the belly. And that's what you see in Lama Sopa. I mean, it's like, you no, know, he he like he he goes. Let's say he arrives somewhere, like two hundred people in a line. So, and people ask, "Oh, Namasopa, 
I don't know, should I should I stay in Paris or mm, yes. Next one. <laughs> <laughs> There is not, it's like spontaneous. There, there is a spontaneous knowing, not only for himself, you know, sh this, should we do this practice, should we do that? But it's also for other people. It takes a lot of trust. Yes. In uh, one's own popcorn right. and other person. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It takes a lot of trust. In yeah. But I think we we have moments like this. Like you go into a bookshop and you kind of okay, what? I don't know what. So and then suddenly you see this book where it jumps out. Or I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly you put you take it and you know, well, this is the right thing. And I came for something else, and it does not make sense. I was never interested in this, but somehow it feels the right thing. This is what I need. This is what I, yeah. So there, there are these moments. And uh, on this uh, path of the uh, uh, the Bodhisattva, of course, we need to learn <coughs> to trust this, because you know. We, we can't spend our life thinking, making decisions like five years of thinking about you know should I move away or not. <laughs> life is too life is too precious to think. <laughs> but it's a, of course this is uh, this is no. It's also uh, how to learn to distinguish genuine intuition, genuine gut feeling uh, that, it, that this is the most beneficial and some kind of, you know, self-importance. You know, so the to, to kind of to kind of learn to, to, to distinguish between when the genuine wisdom comes through or some childhood trauma some childhood fears but it is possible people, people who are getting who are going into that and who start to trust that, trust that they are sometimes recognized as clairvoyant from other people because they, you know, other people start to notice, wow, what's happening here? This, peop this person seems to have a good sense of, uh, uh, of what is happening, left or right. And uh, if you 
if you trust a person like this, like I um, trust Lama Sopa, then you 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 also you you, you trust into that guidance. Um, <coughs> Ken McLeod makes, and then we have a break. Ken McLeod makes one point here about ethical discipline. Is so he says ethical discipline is about how you choose to live your life, and in particular, what you do when your survival is threatened, whether the threat is to your physical survival or or to your survival in a relationship, a job, or community. So that's a good thing like, to, uh, to contemplate within the contemplation of uh, general um, ethics. Yeah? Uh, how, decent do we rem to, how decent do we stay when things become scarce, when things become difficult? When resources are limited, places are limited, chairs in the room are limited. When the chairs in the room are limited, how decent do we stay? And, and this is, uh, no, probably you have, uh, you have heard about these experiments, you know, like. Stanford Prison experiment and you know the, the other experiments where they, they try to find out you know how, how how decent are people when you pressure them when you build an authority when when you create situations uh, and, and this is really this is really a, a good uh, a good contemplation to or a good inspiration to to cultivate and to protect your decency uh, to strengthen your decency even in moments where resources are scarce so that we remain generous to immigrants. that's ethics
Yeah, so let's have a break. Uh, I can tell uh, uh, I have an offering. to the practice of ethics, caring deeply about what you do, what you say and what you think and how it affects others. So caring about what you do, what you think, what you say. how it affects others. So to have some guidelines there, um, within the Buddhist uh, tradition we have the three levels of vows, which we uh, can uh, use as a support to become more aware, to become aware of what we say, do and think. (coughs) (coughs) And uh, the most basic, uh, (coughs) the most basic level is the Patimokshka vows. The vows of self-liberation. So that, that's the, the level of vows which is um, shared with uh, all the Buddhist traditions, and pretty straightforward. The guidelines to live a harmless life. And a beautiful way to um, how they these uh, fa- there's the monks and nuns vows are part uh, are part of this. They are the most elaborate version of these levels of vows. But then there is the five lay vows, which one can take can take uh, as sometimes it's being offered as part of the uh, taking refuge ceremony. And Teach uh, Natan beautifully expressed these five vows, not as something like you shouldn't do, but more as an inspiration. And um, I would like to mention that. He calls it the five mindfulness trainings. And um, the first mindfulness, mindfulness training is to respect life. To respect life.
And what I like in this uh, in his presentation is then when you when he contemplates what it means to respect life, or when we contemplate, what does it mean to respect life? It's really like an open-ended uh, inquiry because uh, it can be so uh, we can think so wide, so far uh, with that. What does it mean to live your life as an expression of respecting life? So it's effect, it affects what we eat, what we what we buy, what we consume, how we live, where we live, how we work with our with energy, and so on and so on. So what does it mean to respect life? So uh, not to make it a heavy burden, but uh, so that's that's so important too to find the joy in respecting life. Then um, yeah uh, respecting uh, property of others. Taking care of shared property. Then uh, speaking truthfully, <laughs> speaking truthfully, speaking the truth. <coughs> so in in the as I said, uh, and then when we come to the Bodhisattva vows, uh, this point will be will be a bit more elaborated upon, but. On this level, it sounds it sounds quite straight straightforward. Okay, I speak truthfully, but it, you know, there is no black and white. What does it mean to speak truthfully? If you know, on on the next level, on the bodhisattva level, wow, the question is more: How can I use my my talking to benefit others. So it becomes really more complex. It becomes, you know, there is not like, oh, this is a lie and this is not a lie. It becomes more like, really like in each situation one needs to find, okay, what's the most beneficial? Maybe I need to lie for the benefit of others in this situation. Then the fourth one is, is using sexual energy in a constructive way. In a connecting way. In a healing way. Outgrowing porn. 
outgrowing abuse of others, outgrowing manipulating others with your sexual energies. Outgrowing those uh, those ways where we um, use our sexual energy not for yeah, for healing and care and connecting and And uh, the fifth is um, So the the fifth is uh, you know to avoid in, intoxicants, but um, uh, so to put it in a positive way, it would be like cultivating awareness, cultivating clarity, and uh, and avoiding uh, intoxicants, uh, which are not increasing our awareness, our clarity. And intoxicants here, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh puts really like, uh, he has a broad description of what intoxicants are. So it's not only like the use of alcohol and drugs, but also media, for example, or um, uh, an unhealthy diet, or so So that's the, the this level of uh, practice. And then the second level of the vows is the Bodhisattva vows. <coughs> I think we went through that right? at one point. Yeah. So in the Bodhisattva vows, you, one of the Bodhisattva vows is that you vow to break the Patyamokshka vows when it is for, for, for the benefit of others. So if you would say, no, I can't lie, even I know this will be harmful, uh, not lying will be harmful for others, and then you you don't lie then and you have taken the bodhisattva vows then you break a bodhisattva vows then you break a bodhisattva vow no i'm not lying i'm not stealing i'm not killing so it becomes very complex Would it, would it, would have, would it have, would it 
It is, is it imaginable that like killing Adolf Hitler, for example, would have been a bodhisattva activity? It's an extreme example, of course. It's always kind of a bit stupid to use extreme examples like that. But uh, maybe sometimes, maybe we could at one point be in a similar situation like that. Or it could be about uh, a relative who is, is suffering and wants to kill herself. I mean, on a reasonable... I mean, so what are you going to do? Are you going to work against it and try to convince that person and not help her and not be there? Well, that, that, that's like... Could be also with a dog or with you know, with a dog. It could be with um, parasites in your body. Well, it could be with parasites in your garden. What are you going to do with the uh, snails? <coughs> Yeah, if you have to taken the the pati moksha vows, it's very clear you don't kill. If you don't harvest the whole year, it doesn't matter. You don't kill. But what is the most beneficial to do in that situation? And everyone in each situation, depending on your capacities or depending on what is possible, there will be different decisions. If your family lives from your garden, you have to kill the snails. Because you want to feed your children. If all there is you have to eat is cows, yucks, then you have to kill yucks. These are just contemplation, I mean. So the Bodhisattva vows. Guidelines for making your life benefit beneficial for others. And how do you make that? The perfection of ethics is to ask the question. <laughs> Who is taking the Bodhisattva vows? And you look. What do you find? Nothing. <laughs> and then the third level, the most profound level, is the tantric vows. Which are supposed to be secret. You can still Google them, but... <laughs> 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 so 
they are not that secret anymore. <laughs> so, any comments on that? Reactions on uh, what I just said about the complexity. These are usually questions which come up when, when we receive teachings on the vows. You know, like that, that's what like the practical questions. So, in the practice of um, uh, ethics, there are five mental factors involved. And I want to mention them and then, then we finish for today. So, these five mental factors, if you remember, maybe if you have received teachings on the 51 mental factors, which are like 51 different capacities in your mind. And uh, five of these mental factors, they are uh, um, cultivated within the practice of morality. So the first one, the first one is uh, discriminating awareness. So that's what, what I said in the beginning. You practice to be aware and you start to take care where you care about what you do, what you say, and what you think, and how it affects others. The second is called moral self-dignity. Moral self-dignity. It's like, sometimes it's called shame, but that's not such a... Uh, shame wouldn't be a positive uh, mental factor. But moral self-dignity, so the one which is meant here, <coughs> is um, it's like a sense of I'm not doing this. Because I have self-respect. I'm not that kind of person. I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I wouldn't, well, 
I, it would be difficult for me to look into mirror, into the mirror. Well, that kind, that that sense. Reflect on yourself. Mm. Yeah, without anyone knowing. It's just you feel uncomfortable with. Uh, imagining to you know take all the copy paper from the copy machine in the company because it's just nobody knows and everyone else is doing it but you just don't do it because there is it feels there's something it does not you you feel like no I'm not that kind of person I, I don't I I'm not doing it. Uh, the third one is uh, sometimes called guilt and again I mean guilt is not a constructive uh, so Alex Burson uh, this is Alex Burson's translation so of these mental factors uh, so it's called here caring how our actions reflect on others uh, reflect to I mean it's like caring about how an action would be seen from others not in a like not in a negative way but just like you care about what you know you care about uh, how to say that what would be an example for that Yeah, an example would be, um, you know, imagine I would be a monk and um, I would care about how you would, you know, if I do things like if I would, for example, take uh, something, some book from the library and not returning it. So I, I would care about how, uh, what... An, what my actions would uh, do with you on you know on how you look at monks and nuns and yeah so in other words it's not no i give a shit uh, I, so to the opposite i uh, so no how do you say that not i give a shit <laughs> I, I it matters to me what you think about me but in a good way, not like in a yeah, not in a ah. Oh, what do they know? They shouldn't think bad about me and so. But in, like in a good way, like an inspiration. Yeah, Things yeah. It matters. It matters. It matters. It matters to me. What do you think about me? So the first one is uh, without anyone involved. It's just something internally. 
the, the moral self-dignity. This one is social, relationship, r relational. Maybe one could think, for example, if you, if you lead a company, if you are a leader, no, then you want to be a good example. And you, you, you care about your behavior and how it is being reflected in the eyes of the people who work for you. So you would become even more precise in your actions and more reflective and more aware of what you do and what you think and what you say and how it affects others. So even more so. Another example would be if you, if you are an immigrant, no? like a Swedish person going to China and living there, and you would feel, oh, I'm kind of, I'm representing Swedish people. So I'm even more careful about, I'm even more aware of what I do and what I say and what I think. Something like that. Is that well thought through or a bit shaky what I'm saying? <laughs> it's very subtle, I think. It's very subtle, yeah. Because I'm not very happy with what I'm saying. But <laughs> yeah, well, you can easily turn the wrong way. We have yeah, a lot yes. of norms in society the, yes. yeah. compels us to do certain things yeah. to get liked by a group. Yeah. That isn't really good. Yeah. So, so you that, have to uh -huh. get the precise... Yeah, yeah. Can you, but you can kind of see that there is something yeah, constructive I, in it. But yeah, mm -hmm. I can see, but it, yeah, it's, it's so yeah. easy to flip on the yes, right side. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's why uh, uh, Alex Burson took care not to use this word, shame and guilt. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so I'd, maybe we just keep it as some point in our mind. Uh, the fourth uh, mental factor here is mindfulness. And here mindfulness referring to re the practice of remembering these guidelines. So in order to practice these guidelines, you need to remember them. You need to keep them in mind. So the mind, the object of mindfulness here is uh, these guidelines. Speaking truthfully, being generous. Yeah. If you take the bodhisattva vows, to be mindful of the bodhisattva vows, to go through them, to uh, to memorize them, to to get to know them, to be mindful of them. And the fifth is called alertness. So alertness is to become aware when you act, think, or speak in a way which is not in accordance with your values. 
So that capacity, that is called alertness. When you notice, oh, now I'm, I'm a bit on the, I'm a bit on the edge of what I actually want to do, how I want to act, how I want to talk, how I want to think. So how do you make this the practice of the perfection? It is to ask the question. And uh, when you ask the question and you rest in the finding, finding nothing, then, as it says in the teachings, then your behavior will spontaneously <coughs> be ethical. And that can be quite crazy. It can look quite crazy from the outside not according the norm. Like Lama Sopa, appears crazy. <laughs> it's not according to the norm. It's uh, it's the the awareness of what you do and what you say and what you think. Just the awareness, uh, the the knowing of it, yeah? discriminating. Yeah. Okay, time is up. <laughs> So four perfections for tomorrow, I don't know. I have to go more slowly. <laughs> but then there is the perfection of meditation, of concentration, and one can say a lot about that. The perfection of joyous effort, yeah, that's also important. Patience, of course, there's the whole thing about working with anger. Yeah, so how to work with anger. So I guess there's... Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there's some things. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, be well, and see you tomorrow.